The Breeze with Beverage Digest. I'm your host, Dwayne Stanford. This is where we bring you into the kinds of industry conversations that we have every day at Beverage Digest. We dissect what's happening, connect the dots, and ask the most important question, what does this mean? I'd like to say hello again to my regular contributor here at the podcast, John Sitcher. John, how are you? Very well, Dwayne. Happy to be back. Uh, And how are you? Doing fantastic. As you guys know out there, John has covered the beverage industry for almost three decades. First as a former publisher of Beverage Digest and more recently as a consultant for companies including Coke and Body Armor. John also has served as an expert witness in beverage-related court cases. John, before we get started, you joined us at Future Smarts last week in your neck of the woods, New York City. Any quick takeaways from uh, what you saw? Yeah, I had a bunch of takeaways, actually, Dwayne. First, um, the themes that I picked up on, I thought that it presented the picture of a generally very healthy industry, um, an industry which is in some change. I think that in the post-COVID era, uh, price and performance uh, are going back to where they were pre-COVID. Um I think that your influencer panel was terrific and I think showed the importance of new kinds of marketing uh, for a range of business and services, certainly being adopted by the beverage industry. And I thought they spoke well and explained well what what influencer marketing is all about. Um, I think certainly it, it, it showed, it pointed up the importance and the continuing importance of DSDs. I think the alcohol, convergence with alcohol was an interesting topic. And I think lastly, I think that um, a terrific speaker was Melody Richard from Walmart. Um, I think that the comment she made about Walmart views, himself, views themselves as a inflation fighter, I thought really pointed up the classic healthy ongoing dynamic between retailers wanting to hold the price on products for their customers and the beverage industry and other CPG industries needing to get more pricing. And I thought that uh, her comments and other comments in the context of that during the day were very interesting. Yeah, You mentioned the uh, influencer panel. That was a lot of fun. We had uh one of the co-founders of Poppy. We had someone from a company called Creator IQ, which uh, tries to basically create ROI metrics uh, for influencer marketing. And then we had an an actual uh, influencer named Preston Conrad who works with Poppy. Um, uh, And they basically sat for a panel and, and just allowed me to ask them everything about how they do their work, how they make money, uh, how they arrange deals between brands. I learned that no longer do uh, influencers want to be called influencers. It's sort of a negative word now. It's, they want to be called creators, which I think is you know really interesting in and of itself. Uh, but I felt like it was a real uh, fun, deep dive into that world. And and one of the real one of the kind of surprises for me was one of our polls that we ran during the conference day when we asked if people. People believe influencer marketing or creator marketing is a new paradigm or just
just a fad. And, you know, there was 90 plus percent of the audience who said it was a new paradigm. So uh, I think uh, this is clearly here to stay. It's something that companies are contending with. Companies like Coca-Cola are spending 60 plus percent of their budget on digital now, which includes uh, social media marketing. Uh, it, just a fascinating panel. I'll write about it uh, a little bit more in, in January, too. Uh, just to share it with those who weren't able to attend. So for today's episode, John and I have decided to dissect some of the biggest stories of this past year. And I'm really excited about this because uh, the idea is to reflect on what it all meant this past year, but we also want to look for clues about what to expect in 2024 and beyond. John, you ready to dive in on that? I'm ready, Dwayne. So uh, you touched on this a minute ago, but clearly the biggest story of the year has been pricing and volume performance. We talked about this in episode nine in great de- depth. I don't, I don't want to do, be too repetitive, but things are moving quick. What have we learned, do you think, in the last few weeks as pricing has decelerated and, and we've seen some volume pressure and, and, and even some pressure when it comes to private label? You know, I think we're seeing, as, as you and I discussed before, and to be very quick, as you said, I think we're seeing a reversion to patterns pre-COVID. Um, I don't think anything fundamentally has changed in this industry, with the exception of the the of, of the COVID years and the intervention of the terrible pandemic, and a and, and which really changed re- shopping buying patterns, um, consumers' preferences on a short-term basis. But I think what we're seeing now is we're going right back to what we saw in the years between 2015 and 2020. And um, I think that we're seeing a time when we're going to go back to the industry working very hard to get modest pricing gains. Volume will be down a bit. And I think they're going to have to work hard to get some modest revenue gains based upon pricing and keeping volume as strong as they can. You know, it's really interesting because I think all that's absolutely true. Uh, it, one of the, you know, looking at some of the more recent data, data ending December 2nd, um, you know, Nielsen data from Goldman Sachs, we see just really interesting things like the fact that uh, volume performance in the last four-week period is down about 1.4%. It had been down for the 12-week period by about 3.1%. So we're starting to see see it kind of level off a little bit here, uh, the volume decline as pricing has gone from you know around 13.6% gain for the 52-week period, again, ending December 2nd, and then uh, four-week period, uh, pricing has gained 5.7%, so quite a deceleration. Yet, the, yet the volume has uh, the volume decline has sort of lessened a little bit. What do you think is going on there? Again, I think that again, I, th- I think we're, we're returning to a time when volume is going to decline. Volume's, volume is going to be hard to volume growth is going to be hard to achieve. I think that. I, th- I think what we have to say to ourselves is basically that nothing fundamentally has changed in this industry since 2017, 18, and 19. And I don't think results are going to change. So I think what everything you're talking about, Dwayne, paints a picture of the industry moving back to where it was before COVID. It, it was doing pretty well. It wasn't, it wasn't doing badly. It was doing pretty well. But some of these price gains that we saw in the, in the last couple of years, 13% and better, yeah. Um, it's just not going to continue. It's, it, it can't continue. 
Yeah, I think the big question is, and in 2024 should bear this out, has there been some reset, at least, of the consumer in terms of their expectation of pricing? I mean, they're still getting almost 6%. They're still going to need to get pricing next year. Uh, You know, costs aren't skyrocketing right now, uh, but costs are still up and they're going to continue to be up. Uh, So, you know, we'll know next year whether there has been some level of reset that that gives consumers uh, or at least continues to allow companies to, uh, you know, charge for some of these products to the range that they need to cover their costs and in a way that they can be profitable. And, you know, also we'll find out how good they are at managing uh, those expectations for consumers, putting in the right kind of promotions when they make sense in order to keep that demand lever uh, uh, where it needs to be as well. And then, of course, marketing. That's going to be a big thing. How do you keep people uh, devoted to your brands and willing to pay some of those prices? And I think everybody should, and I'm sure you'll write about it, Wayne, everyone should listen to what Melody Richard of Walmart has to say when she talked about Walmart sees themselves as an inflation fighter. You know, mm-hmm. I think that I think that we none of us know yet what 2024 is going to look like for the consumer. Stock market's very strong right now. Unemployment's in pretty good shape. Uh, inflation's come certainly come down a bit, but t- 2024 is going to be probably a very complicated year and a very dynamic year. And I think that if we end up in 2024 at the, at the end of 2024 with Pricing up in the range of four to five percent, mm-hmm. volume volume down in the range of one to two percent, and revenue growth in the three percent, three and a half percent. I think the industry will need to say to itself, "It had a successful year," yeah. because I don't see how it does much better than that. Yeah, that, I think that would be managing things quite well. You know, another thing in recent data that really jumped out at me was the fact that. Private label CSDs in the last four-week period are now down about 7.5%. Private label had been up 4.4% for the 52-week period. So as the prices elevated towards that 15% range over the course of the year, people started moving to private label within CSDs. Now, it's not a huge category. It's, you know, less than 5%, around 5% or so. Um, But that was still a warning sign. But we've seen that back off here in the last quarter at the same time that pricing uh, increases have come down. I I guess that probably follows. But is there any chance that that the industry is kind of out of the woods to some degree on that kind of pressure? I I think so. I think that... My view of private label is this. I think that many years ago, private label was had a bigger share of CSDs than it does now and has had recently. I think the run-up in pricing in the last couple of years predictably um, helped private label. We're, talk, we're talking about CSDs. And as pricing has begun to drift, pricing increases have begun to drift down again, um, private label has reacted as... It it, it 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 probably inevitably inevitably would. I think one of the issues for private label is this. I think that twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, um, a lot of moms bought private label soft drinks to for 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 youngsters. I think it was a um, a buy to save money. Uh, the flavors were the fla- especially especially in the flavors, less so in the colas. I think that as 
volume has has come down in CSDs, I think two things have happened. Fewer moms are probably buying CSDs for their kids. And I think that Coke and Pepsi have done a better job marketing their big brands in the last 10 or 15 years. And I think those two things have created a negative pressure for private label. And I don't see that changing. I think private label will have a place in the CSD business. Maybe Whatever its market share is now, probably it's not going to be much higher than that um, anytime soon. But I don't think that private label CSDs are going to be a growth business anytime, anytime soon. It's more, it's more a barometer, right? It's more just sort of an indicator of, okay, consumers pushing back a little more, especially at the lower end of the scale and even, you know, the middle income levels. Um, It's still a good barometer, would you say? It's a good barometer. Um, But I also think it's a function of, again, I think that the two big cola companies and KDP for that much have, have, have done a better job in the last 20 years of making their brands a compelling purchase. Um, I think their marketing has been better. I think that they've done, a, they've done a much better job with innovation. I mean, look at all the new varieties of Coke and Pepsi and Mountain Dew we have, the new varieties of Sprite, the new varieties of Dr. Pepper. So I think when, at a time when basically colas were colas, peppers were peppers, lemon limes were lemon limes, it was easier for private label to compete with good tasting colas, peppers, citrus, and lemon limes. As Coke and Pepsi and KDP have begun to innovate and create lots of new and interesting brands and brands extensions, it's that that's created a competitive hurdle for private label in my view. Yeah. Well, so and th- it's also... They've also, you know, created incentives for retailers because when you have this kind of uh, revenue growth management that they have with new package sizes, they're not only, you know, making these drinks more profitable for them, they're making them more profitable for retailers as well and giving consumers reasons to, you know, get into that aisle or come to the store and pick up some of these, whether it be a mini can for even alcohol beverages or whatever. And then if you've got DSD, I mean, this DSD is, uh, is quite compelling, obviously, too, when it comes to actually driving uh, growth in those stores. So that's got to be contributing too. I think, think? I think that's an excellent point. I mean, private label had its heyday when the grocery business was basically a business of, of, of 12 packs and two liter. Today, you walk into a grocery store and to your point, Dwayne, there are really, the, the industry's done a good job. The, the, big, the big branded uh, CSD companies have done a very good job with package differentiation. It's been a key to their revenue growth management. And I think that that's put additional pressure on private label. So again, I think private label will have a place in the carbonated soft drink business, but I think it's going to be a smaller place than it was a few decades ago and less of a threat to the big brand, big, big brand companies. Another big story this year has been alcohol convergence. And this has been a, a story over the last couple of years. But this year was sort of where the rubber meets the road. I mean, you have a situation where PepsiCo has completely shaken up the industry and, uh, you know, really uh, caught the attention of beer distributors as, as PepsiCo becomes a distributor of alcoholic products uh, as opposed to using a, another manufacturer. And, you know, for those maybe not as familiar, 
here in the U.S., alcohol is regulated at the state level uh, through what's called a three-tier system. And this is one where vertical integration is pretty much not allowed. Manufacturers have to be separate than wholesalers. Wholesalers have to be separate from retailers. PepsiCo has done a deal with Boston Beer uh, for Boston Beer to create Hard Mountain Dew. Uh, and and left the manufacturing to Boston Beer and PepsiCo has said we're going to create Blue Cloud Distributing and we're going to distribute those products ourselves and they've had to go into each state and get permission to do that and a, a few states have challenged them and said look it looks to me like you're trying to have it both ways uh, you know Mountain Dew is your trademark you're providing a syrup to help flavor it uh, some of your trucks uh, are being used. Uh, for Blue Cloud to distribute products. You're using some uh, facilities that are, you know, PepsiCo bottling type facilities, and they've raised questions about this. They've gotten through about 18 states. There's a handful of states that have either rejected or under appeal. Um, And so I think, you know, clearly 2024 is going to shape up to be a a real key year uh, to find out whether PepsiCo can continue to push through on that and stick to this plan and try to become this distributor despite a an enormous amount of pressure from distributors, beer distributors who say, look, you're encroaching on our territory. They're used to, you know, having states with one or two or three beer distributors. Uh, They're not used to that kind of competition necessarily. So they're pushing back. Meanwhile, on the flip side, you've got Coca-Cola with its Red Tree subsidiary. And they're saying very clearly, we will not compete with beer distributors we will not distribute we're gonna we're gonna just we're gonna authorize our brands and we're gonna market some of these products but we're gonna let distributors be distributors in this so you've really created this sort of uh these two conflicting models in 2024 may be a year for that to shake out what are your what are your thoughts as you sit back and kind of watch that play out john you know i think both companies are doing what they should be doing let me tell you what i mean by that Mm mm-hmm Pepsi in the U.S. is basically both a brand owner and a bottler. It owns, you You have the most recent numbers, Dwayne. I think Pepsi's company-owned bottling operation handles probably, what, 75, 70, 75 yep. to 70, 77% of its volume. Coke owns no distrib- has no distribution, owns no bottling operations in the U.S. anymore. So it's in, it, 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 what we've seen and what you outlined really makes sense. The big news from Coke on the alcohol side has been about brands. Uh, Coke, Simply, Fresca, Minute Maid, Topo Chico. And the big news, in my opinion, from PepsiCo has been Blue Cloud because they are a distributor. And what they're trying to do is basically add some heft and diversity to their distribution system by 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 adding alcohol. So it's 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 what both companies have done is logical and I, you know I don't know to what extent um, you know this better than I Dwayne to what extent Blue Cloud is going to make a lot more headway into getting into more states next year. But it seems to me that that's an important priority for Pepsi if Blue Cloud's going to be a long-term success. 
Yeah, I mean, they've now run into some trouble in some of these states. So the question is, can they uh, turn it around in those states? And actually, you know, they've they've won an appeal or so. um, So they have been able to to get through states where they initially ran into resistance. Um, And, you know, how long are they going to be willing to invest uh, in in this type of situation where, you know, each additional state is a hurdle potentially, and it maybe gets harder from here. Uh, how much patience do they have to, to see that through long term? Because eventually, you know, you do need the scale in order to make this work and, you know, presumably take on other brands. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a real pivotal year when it comes to that. It's very pivotal, but, you know, as, as I just said, Pepsi North America is a very big bottler. Coke North America has no bottling operations. So it makes perfect sense that each company is doing what they're doing. And yeah. I, think, I think you're right. I think next year, certainly I think Coke will have some success uh, marketing and sell, selling these brands through alcohol distribution uh, chains. I think... I think if Pepsi can get Blue Cloud and some of its big uh, independent bottlers approved, I think that could be a very, very big, big, uh, important factor for this industry. But, you know, I, I, I don't know how that's going to play out over next year yet. It, it's a really important point you're making about the difference in PepsiCo and Coca-Cola. I mean, at its core, PepsiCo is an operating company. I mean, Frito-Lay is an operation, operating company. They distribute the products, they manufacture them. They're not afraid of operations. They own most of their bottling system, as you pointed out. They're not afraid of operations. So I I think your point about it makes sense for them is exactly right. Um, And so I do expect PepsiCo to, to figure out to try to figure this out and try to make a go of it. Coca-Cola, on the other hand, as you also pointed out, doesn't own any of its bottling. They're not an operating company. They're a a marketing company. Uh, So they're doing what makes sense for their system. So it's entirely possible that, you know, these two things aren't necessarily in conflict. They're just what's right for each of the two companies. But at the end of the day, PepsiCo's got the, the more difficult road ahead, but potentially the more lucrative one if they can actually make it go and and work it out over time. And there's a big debate right now within alcohol, which is the extent to which the three-tier system is under threat because, uh, you know, as younger legislators come on, someone's made that point recently, you know, they look at alcohol different. They look at some of those models differently. Is there going to be pressure over time to change some of those models? I mean, that could work in PepsiCo's favor, uh, but it's going to be a long uphill battle. So what's really interesting with this whole alcohol conversation is at the same time that we see Coke and Pepsi creating alcohol products out of their key brands. I just wrote about another one this week. Uh, Minute Made Spike. That's a new product from Coke. It's wine based. Uh, so you know, again, they're. I would say they're past. They keep saying they're experimenting, but in my mind, they're past experimental phase. They're they're looking to make a go of this long term. But at the same time, you have all that going. You've got this trend where younger people are drinking less. Uh, they're uh, you know uh, you know either not drinking at all or just drinking less on specific occasions, mixing it up with non alcohol. Uh, so you've got a trend towards less 
alcohol at the same time that you have companies piling into alcohol. I mean, I'm not sure what that means exactly, uh, other than, uh, you know, just like everything else these days in consumer marketing, it's all about segmentation and really trying to serve all the constituencies. Uh, But non-alcohol beer, that's been an interesting story this year, not only because Athletic Brewing, which is the the lead non-alcoholic brewer in the country, not only have they continued to accelerate and grow, they've uh, hooked up with Keurig Dr. Pepper, which gave them a a sizable investment. Uh, Keurig Dr. Pepper is now an investor in that company. We talked to uh, Justin Whitmore, Chief Strategy Officer for KDP at Future Smarts, and he talked about the fact that they're watching and learning and, you know, potentially there's some uh, opportunity for them to distribute at some point uh, and help them grow into some accounts and some uh, channels where they aren't now. Um, but, you know, as you look back at that, uh, John, what, do you, what is your take on the whole non-alcohol beer sector, and especially when it comes to the non-alcoholic companies being involved? If I may, let me hit. Let me go back to the first part of, uh, of what you're just talking about. You know, you said young people. I think you said young people are drinking less alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, think of it this way: for Coke and Pepsi, every case of alcoholic beverages they sell is a growth case for them because they weren't in it. So, to the extent that they can use alcoholic versions of some of their brands to pick up drinking occasions they didn't have before and take perhaps take share from the alcohol the alcohol companies it those are those are, those are growth cases from that for them so i Great think point. what they're doing i think i think what they're doing is exactly right and i think that they're going to have some success because they've got very strong brands to use i mean you know there aren't a lot of st- stronger brands in the food and beverage business than coke mountain dew uh, and that some of the so, so, you know, some of Coke's juice brands like Minute Maid and Simply Topo Chico, um, so every every case they every case they sell is a, is a growth case. It's probably not going to cannibalize their existing non-alcohol brands in terms of in terms of the non-alcoholic beer. I can tell you from personal experience and experience with friends of mine, I love it. I drink it. More and more people I know drink it. It's low in calories. It tastes great. Uh, I I can drink it after exercise. It, it, it hydrates. I can drink it during the during during the week for lunch. I don't I don't I get the great taste of a beer without without the alcohol. Um, I think these are in essence new kinds, a new twist on carbonated soft drinks. They're refreshing. They they taste great. I personally think the non-alcoholic beer business has a big growth future ahead of it. Yeah, you know, so far, I love beer, but non-alcoholic beer, I've just not been able to get there yet. Uh, I've tried some. They're, they're good. Uh, I, re- I just wrote about uh, in my opening thoughts in the issue this week about the fact that right now I'm not, I'm not drinking as I try to get in shape. And, uh, you know, it's been about a month and a half now. Um, you know, I, and I haven't, I've just not gotten into the non-alcoholic beers, but a reader did tell me that I should really try the Guinness, by the way. I don't know if you tried that yet, but the zero alcohol Guinness, <laughs> definitely want to give that a shot. Um, but, you no. know, I think that it, for me, there, it, there's a natural ceiling to it. I mean, you know, 
know, there's something about alcohol and the functionality of it and the, uh, the lowering of inhibition that uh, basically creates uh, higher consumption rates. And so I think there's a natural ceiling to it. But right now, it's starting from almost nothing. I mean, non-alcoholic beer is a joke in this country. So there's plenty of room for that to grow right now. Um, do you, and so here's my question, though. Do you see non-alcoholic, uh, you know, traditional non-alcoholic beverage companies like Dr. Pepper, uh, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, actually putting non-alcoholic beer on their trucks eventually? Eventually, yes. Again, I think that I don't see non-alcoholic beer as much of a replacement for alcoholic beer, but I think that there are some occasions for people who like beer like I do. So, for example, on a hot summer day, if I play a set of tennis or in the morning, have lunch, I'm, and I'm going to play some tennis in the afternoon, I don't want a beer because I don't want the alcohol. But mm-hmm. I'd love to, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm thirsty after playing some tennis in the hot sun, having a sandwich and a beer at, l- at lunch tastes great. Non-alcoholic beer works perfectly for me. And I think that's the kind of occasion where it's also low in calories, it tastes good, um, I think it's over time it could cut a bit into the carbonated soft drink business and maybe even the sports drink business. Um, do I think it's going to replace alcoholic beer? No. Uh, to your point, the functionality of alcoholic beer is, is a big part of its appeal. But, but I think the taste and refreshment of the non-alcoholic beers uh, presents some real growth opportunity. Um, you know, let's move on. An- another issue uh, is cannabis. And this has been kind of like a couple of year issue, really. And there was a gold rush a couple of years ago with everyone wanting to get into cannabis beverages. I mean, CBD, uh, and that was going to be the precursor to THC eventually. Uh, questions about whether it could, you know, cannibalize alcohol, uh, whether, you know, this could be something that non-alcoholic companies would want to get into. The non-alcoholic companies like Coca-Cola, stayed back on it to watch turned out to be a great move uh, because so far we've not seen the kind of regulation that would really open up that market. Um, You know, people who, you know, marketing that over state lines and creating the scale across state lines is just not possible right now because of the risk, the regulatory risk. What what is your, what do you think is going to happen with that? I mean, do you think we're going to get any regulation anytime soon? I mean, I almost want to say 2024 is kind of a year to watch for that, but I'm not convinced we're going to see meaningful movement on that yet either. I don't think in an election year we're going to see meaningful movement on much at all, and probably not this. And, you know, I think we're going to still be talking about will there be federal regulation um, for the sale of cannabis for probably years to come? And... Uh, you know, some years ago, I thought this was going to be a big opportunity to create new kinds of functional beverages. I, I at this point in time, I don't see it happening anytime soon. I, I, yeah. I didn't, I didn't see it happening during the four, the four years of the Trump administration, conservative Republicans. I haven't seen it happening during, the, I guess, three years now of the Biden administration, moderate to liberal Democrats. Um, I'm not sure I fully understand why, but uh, I think that it's uh, th- it, this is not going to be something which happens anytime soon. 
Yeah, I remember uh, Coca-Cola's James Quincy, CEO of Coca-Cola, talking at the time when everybody wanted to know, you know, are is Coke, Pepsi, are they going to get into to cannabis beverages? Are they going to hook up with a, a company, invest in a company like uh, Canopy Growth, the way Constellation Brands, the beer company, did? Uh, and he said at the time, well, we look at three things. First of all, is, is it safe? Uh, is it efficacious? Like, does it do the sa- the thing it says it does? And then is it scalable? Like, can people repeat the drinking of these things? And, uh, you know, I think he turned out to be uh, quite uh, prescient in terms of understanding the ex- what you needed to make that industry truly fly. Of course, entrepreneurs, they jumped right in, as they should. That's what entrepreneurs do. You take those risks, and sometimes they pay off, and sometimes they don't. All the people that wanted to be first movers are now having to kind of rethink the entire strategy. I do think long term, uh, to me, the thing that really has the most promise long term is perhaps THC beverages, especially if you continue to see states legalize recreational use. I mean, edibles are sort of seem to be one of the preferred methods now. Um, And, you know, perhaps uh, beverages will have a place in that eventually. And of course, you know, with that, there's implications for beer. Uh, But that'll be one to watch for sure. Um, You know, another big thing this year was artificial intelligence chat gpt at the end of last year made huge waves you know i mean artificial artificial intelligence has been around for some time um but it really hit the public the mass public consciousness uh this year because of chat gpt and people being able to get their hands on it and companies being able to use it and small companies be able to use it uh you know you had coca-cola dive in in a big way both from their marketing approach but also they've talked a lot about uh how they're trying to use it you know whether it be in distribution or uh, product segmentation, uh, channel segmentation, that kind of thing. Um, artificial intelligence now is something that's talked about uh, in all facets of these big companies like Coke and Pepsi and Dr. Pepper. Uh, what's your takeaway from all that, John? What, what, what do you, what, as you look forward, what do you expect to happen? You know, I'd look, I think, I, I don't pretend to know and understand a lot about AI, but um, I was on a call recently with um, Jamie Dimon, who's chairman and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, and he was asked by an investor, did he think that artificial intelligence was going to play a major role in the future of J.P. Morgan Chase? And he answered one word, yes. Um, <laughs> I think that your speaker, um, Karen Jordan, talked about that they're using AI more and more uh, in their logistics operations at, uh, at, in, in, their, in their distribution business. It, it, it just seems to me, if what I glean and have come to believe, Dwayne, is that as the, over the next couple of years, AI is going to be a very big and important tool for different companies in different ways. Yeah, I totally agree with that, John. Bang, Bang Energy, what, a, what an amazing story. I mean, this is a company that grew to the number three sports, number three energy drink. Uh, You know, it ended up in bankruptcy. And then this year it was sold to Monster. I mean, who would have ever guessed that, Uh, you know, 
monster being Bang's arch enemy. Uh, they were they sued each other <laughs> for the last few years. Uh, monster prevailed in those, and that was uh, a large part of what you know precipitated the bankruptcy this year. And then they ended up buying them. Um, you know, what's that going to mean for energy drinks going forward? Do you, do you think Monster is going to be able to, I mean, will they bring Bang back to the prominence it had before? Uh, do, do they need to? I don't know that they need to even. Uh, what, what's your take on that? Uh, you know, I think there are two things to watch. I think that, I think Monster will probably create a decent-sized business out of Bang, um, but not a blockbuster. The other thing I'm interested to watch is the former owner of Bang, uh, Mr. Owak, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a very high-energy entrepreneur. And I wonder whether there's another chapter to watch um, for Mr. Owak, um, you know, whether he feels that he has something more that he wants to prove and show about his expertise in building and marketing beverages. And I don't know if you've picked up anything anything on the, along those lines, but I think watching for a, a, a development from Mr. Owak in either 2024, or 2025 will, will be something to will be something to watch for. Yeah, he does not go quietly into the night. I mean, he's our, he's sort of still in fight mode. You know, the question is, does he at some point decide, okay, let's move on to the next venture and fight by way of creating a new challenger? We'll see. I, I think it's right. likely. I think it's likely as well. Right. Um, body Armor. Body Armor's been an interesting story. Coca-Cola's been working on plans to bring that, to get that brand back to the kind of growth it was used to before the the, the KO uh, acquisition of that full brand. Um, I'm not sure within a company like Coca-Cola that it really has to return to those growth rates or even ever will. Uh, but they're clearly working on some plans uh, to, to grow that and innovate. They've added, uh, you know, they've added the, um, some powders now and they've got their rapid hydration product, uh, um, Flash IV, uh, which is interesting. Uh, but, but at the same time they're trying to do that, you've got this Challenger Prime that's, you know, based on creator marketing, influencer marketing uh, with two, you know, big time influencers. And that brand has done in, you know, a little over a year what it took years for Body Armor to achieve in terms of market share. Uh, that category is going to just continue to be interesting, wouldn't you say? Definitely. The way I look at the sports drink category, Dwayne, is there's Gatorade and everything else. And to be a a successful part of everything else, you've got to be fast on your feet, innovative, a great marketer. And Body Armor was that. And it's not a surprise when Body Armor moved from independent ownership under Micropoli to being a Coke brand that... It it lost a little bit of its sort of speed speed and excitement, and I don't criticize Coke for that. It's very hard for a great big company like Coke or P and G or PepsiCo to basically market and sell a small innovative fighter brand. And I think to your point, Prime has now sort of picked up the mantle that Body Armor had before. Body Armor is a great brand. 
Coke can certainly improve its performance, and I believe them when they say they are working to do that. But I think the sports drink business is basically, you've got to find a way to compete against Gatorade, and you've got to be fast, innovative, great marketing uh, to do that. And I think Body Armor slipped a little bit, and Prime pick, picked up some picked up some speed there. Body Armor can certainly can can improve its performance, but I don't think it's going to return to the 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 growth the kind of growth that it had 40, 50, 60 percent a year of in, in its early years. And I'll tell you something else: if 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 someone buys Prime five years from now or three years from now, or two years from now, if a big company buys Prime, I think the same thing would happen to Prime. I think it's really, I think it's really important to understand that innovative entrepreneurs with deep pockets and good ideas can do exciting stuff. The second generation of those products in the hands of the big CPG companies is simply harder. I think, you know, within Body Armor, I mean, Federico Moichant, the CEO of the combined Body Armor Powerade, that's going to be really interesting. I think, you know, he's got a ton of energy, but, you know, aside from that, bottlers seem to like him. They seem to have some faith in what he's going to be able to do with that brand over time. Uh, You know, they're retooling. I mean, he talks about it a lot, about the fact that Body Armor, you know, of course, they didn't have, uh, you know, a rapid hydration product at the same time that brands like Electrolyte uh, and then Gator Light. Uh, following on have really opened up that whole market. Uh, they've added that now. Um, you know, the zero sugar space, I mean, that's one. I mean, surely there's got to be innovation, uh, you know, uh, there potentially. Uh, you've got powders, uh, very important. Speaking of which, powders, Can I mean, can you believe what's happened with powders uh, in, the, in the last year? I mean, you've got Gatorade and Propel adding tablets. And I'm talking tablets and powders, you know, these single-serve enhancers. Flash IV is added. Body Armor, uh, a powder. Electrolyte has a you know has a powder and a zero sugar. Uh, Liquid IV, the leader in uh, sports powdered hydration beverages, has added a kids version, a sugar free version. I mean, this is a space that you know years ago when you had drops like Mio and Kraft doing that, you know, and it and it sort of seemed to have all this promise for very light products that are easy to distribute don't take up a lot of shelf space but it it you know it's an interesting business but there's something entirely new happening now with this wouldn't you say yeah i would and i think a lot of it has to do with e-commerce beverages have a relatively low share in relative to other products in e-commerce part of the reason is that it's it's very heavy to ship it's very it's expensive and heavy to ship beverages they're mostly water and i think that the convenience and the cost effectiveness of just shipping basically a powder or a tablet which contains the flavor and the ingredients and is 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 going to be is going to get more important and time goes on and gives the beverage business a way to play more strongly in e-commerce. You know, we talked about energy, we talked about sports drinks, KDP, they they made some uh, really interesting investments. Uh, one in Nutribolt, which makes C4, which is a you know one of the energy drinks that's really been a challenger in the market in recent years. Uh, they're now going to you know give them a whole new distribution platform. Uh, Electrolyte, this is the rapid hydration product started from a pharmaceutical company in Mexico. They brought it here to the U.S. in 2015. Uh, it really took off and they gained share, which kind of surprised everyone. Uh, 
uh, PepsiCo jumped in and created Gator Light uh, as a rapid hydrator uh, to compete with them and go after some of those same consumers. KDP now has investments in both. Um, uh, KDP really is, uh, you know, sort of has their uh, allied brand, their partnership uh, model uh, really kind of figured out at this point, wouldn't you say? I think I think what they're doing is is very smart. Larry Young started this a while back by adding allied brands, and there's a good reason for it. If you, if you look at KDP and, and and its bottling system, they don't really have a great big anchor brand because their biggest and most successful brand, Dr Pepper, is mainly sold in the Coke and Pepsi systems. So they they are now adding allied brands to give themselves growth platforms to add product appealing products for their bottlers and to add to the portfolio of products they go they go in, into retailers with i'd make one prediction back in the 1990s the coke and pepsi bottling system sold a lot of allied brands brands like seven up a and w sunkist and then they decided to purge those brands out of their system and um focus only on brands that they owned. That's already beginning to slip again. Coke, Coke basically, is, the Coke bottlers sell Monster. Uh, the Pepsi bottlers have brands like Crush and Celsius. I believe that as the soft drink companies and the soft drink bottlers over the next couple of years fight for ways to get new growth, I think you're going to see the Coke and Pepsi systems also following what KDP is doing and beginning beginning to take on more allied brands with the support and encouragement of the of, of their brand owning companies and with their brand owning companies Coke and Pepsi figuring out ways to make money in doing that. Well, we had Matthew Dent, of course, uh, as one of the speakers at Future Smarts, and they've done what he calls the stacking uh, technique, where they've basically uh, gotten permission from PepsiCo to take on more KDP brands than just Dr. Pepper, which they've had for years. Uh, so now he's putting on trucks, competitors, basically. I mean, you've got RC on the same trucks as Pepsi-Cola. Uh, you know, of course, Matthew Dent, Buffalo Rock, he's the CEO of Buffalo Bock, the, the uh large Pepsi bottler out of uh, Birmingham, Alabama, uh, Birmingham, Georgia, Florida. Uh, and, you know, that was pr a pretty interesting deal and kind of speaks to what you're saying. Um, so I, I guess what you're saying is you see, you know, do you see the potential for more bottlers, even in the Coke and Pepsi system to do some of that? I do. I do. I think that, again, it's all about growth. I think yep. that, I think, I think the Coke and, Coke and Pepsi, have great brands, I think they struggle for growth and their bothers struggle for growth. And, you know, COVID was a aberration period. Pricing went through the roof. It was a very profitable time for, for, for bottlers. But I think as we move beyond 2023 into, into the next couple of years, I think that what KDP is doing and what Coke and Pepsi have begun to do with energy drink brands, Celsius and Monster, they're going to do more and more of. They are they, innovating and buying brands is difficult and expensive. Um, and I think t 
taking an equity stake or in a brand or becoming a master distributor for a brand and putting it through your bottler system, I think is a way to get some growth, understand more about other brands, give your bottlers some, some additional profits and volume to fill up their trucks. I, I think by the end of this decade, Dwayne, we're going to see a range of allied brands on Coke and Pepsi trucks, uh, unlike what we see today. Yeah, they, they could also be non-alcoholic uh, right. alcohol products and alcohol products even. Um, and, and the growth that is happening is happening on the dollar side. So, you know, if you have package diversification, revenue growth management, I mean, naturally, that's less volume, but you still have to fill trucks. You still need full trucks um, for cost efficiencies, and you still need to, you know, those routes need to be mac- as, as efficient as possible, especially when you're a big public company. Um, and so that's going to create more pressure to sort of consolidate what goes on these trucks and limit the number of runs or visits to stores and all of that. I mean, that's part of what's happening, right, in terms of that kind of consolidation. It is, and you know, it, it's been trickling back. Remember, back I think in 2018, um, Coke took a stake in Body Armor and put it on Coke trucks. Um, so they had they had an equity stake like they do in Monster, but but again, I think that the bottlers need profitable, growing brands, and. One route to do that is going to be allied brands. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more of that as the years go on. So, John, before we go, I want to ask you about one more. Costa Coffee, I just did a, a takeout on uh, a couple of issues ago on their strategy in the U.S. I mean, we're really starting to see a little more post-COVID, you know, after so many stores had to close. And, you know, the timing of that acquisition was just terrible for Coke. Uh, you know, they seem to now be sort of finding their way back to a strategy here now that they've kind of gotten past that, uh, that, you know, you might call it a traumatic period. I don't know. I mean, clearly it was traumatic. Uh, uh, but, uh, but in terms of even that business, it was a challenging period for them. Um, they're starting to now really lean into again, this, uh, uh, you know, the notion of putting uh, machines into, you know, self-serve machines, uh, cafe machines into all kinds of outlets, uh, whether it be uh, food service or hotels or universities or airports, and even looking pretty heavily at the C-store market now. Uh, and the idea is that you have an automated barista uh, that's the footprint of like a freestyle soft drink machine, for instance, uh, it gives you the flexibility as a business to add premium coffee in a way that's cost effective and doesn't take up a ton of space and, and more importantly, use tons of labor. Do you think this, uh, this plan has legs? Look, I think, the, I think the bottom line is this. I think the bottom line is coffee is a very big category of beverages. Starbucks has proved that. And you got to be in coffee. So Coke's two competitors, uh, what was Dr. Pepper, Snapple is now Keurig Dr. Pepper. That company is in coffee in a big way. PepsiCo with a Starbucks joint venture is in coffee in a big way. You got to be in coffee. Coke's going to use Costa. And whether this particular vector into the business for them is what they ultimately succeed with, I don't know. But I do know that 
Coke will basically be a bigger and bigger participant in the coffee business in the years to come because they have to be. I mean, Starbucks is a Starbucks is more than just a coffee store chain today. Starbucks is a very big beverage company and a lot of their drinks are coffee based, some aren't. But you you got, you got to be in coffee. So what Coke's doing now is they're tiptoeing toward forward with this particular strategy. Sounds interesting. Is it their ultimate strategy? I don't know. They probably don't either. But they will be a big factor in coffee over the next five years. John Sitchers, a pleasure as always to have you on the show today. So remember, you can read about all of these stories and more in Beverage Digest. Please remember to check out our website. You can subscribe there and we'll see you in the new year. The Breeze is produced by Beverage Digest. Visit our website to learn more about our products and subscribe to our newsletter. That's www.beverage-digest.com.